look at the topic of the passion of a Christian, what it means to take up our cross. So with that thought in our mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. Just what a a blessed thing it is to be able to gather as brothers and sisters in this beautiful facility around your word to worship you, to pray, and to study your word. Lord, it's a blessing. And Lord, I don't know the heart of each person that is here, but I can imagine that there are many who during the course of the week have endured stress, who are enduring uncertainty. Maybe there's something they're angry about, something they're fearful about, frustrated about. But Lord, your word tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to you. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I just pray that that very peace, Lord, would be what fills our heart right now, that we would be able to set aside whatever distractions or thoughts we have for these next few moments and just be able to listen to you. And I pray, Lord, that I would be that instrument that effectively communicates, Lord, what your word, what you have put upon my heart. And so, Lord, as your word does go forth, may it be that seed that doesn't just land on hard soil, but it would land on that good soil and that it would germinate and bear fruit, Heavenly Father, in our life. So bless our time in your word this evening. Bless each person that is here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, our passages are in the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34, Luke 9, verse 23, Matthew 10, verse 38. Basically, uh, the similar verse uh, from the three synoptic Gospels. Um, But our topic is the passion of a Christian. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is is a verse that we all know. I am sure that if I gave you the first few words, you would remember it. He who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And you know, I think that verse in reality, in its great and simplistic brevity, really pictures the whole gospel story. The whole gospel story spoken and prophesied about from the beginning of the Old Testament, begun in the Christmas story, fulfilled in the Easter story, and continued in the work of Christ in you and me. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You know, when Jesus began at his coming in the manger, it was, that it was simply the necessary beginning, the Christmas story is the necessary beginning to the greater work, the greater good work that Jesus came to accomplish through his death and resurrection. And behind those two memorable occasions, Christmas and Easter, we see the attitude of Christ in doing them. 
And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we, we get a picture. We get the, the Bible sheds more light on Christ's attitude as he undertook that task. Paul, Paul shares there in verse 5 of Philippians 2, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. I want you to just kind of look behind the verses and notice the attitude of Christ in those verses. In every aspect of his life, from his birth to his life to the suffering to his death on the cross and his resurrection, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. When I look at that, when I look at Christ's attitude, I would say, or you might say, we might say that Christ is passionate about us. He's been passionate about saving us. And this brings me to that word that I want you to remember today and maybe have a deeper or wider understanding of, passion. You know, that word passion and the variants of it have come certainly to be a catchphrase in our culture, in our society. We talk of and admire someone being passionate about what they do. And in one sense, on a very superficial level, one would be correct in saying that Christ is passionate in his love for us, in his desire to save us. But the word passion, as we know, has its roots in Latin and French and has a deeper meaning, a meaning you're familiar with, and it means to suffer. Every Easter, many words, eloquent words, are written about the passion of the Christ, maybe none so more vividly as in the movie The Passion of the Christ. But the question for us as Christ's birth marked, in every way, the beginning of Christ's passion, his suffering for, for our sake, what does our rebirth signify? Christ's birth marked the beginning of Christ's passion. What does our rebirth signify? We certainly have a knowledge and a gratitude for Christ's suffering and his death. We have a knowledge of our own rebirth. But does the knowledge of these things ignite a passion, a fire in our soul to take up our cross as it ignited Christ to take up his cross? And I would say that is the passion of a Christian. And it's what I want to talk about tonight. And the question I have is, is it enough to talk about or even to immerse our minds in the emotion of what Christ did for us? And I think the answer is no. To go the distance, to persevere until the end, to stay in the race, we need to lay hold of and embrace and fulfill the command of Christ to take up our cross daily. And so if you look, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 8, we're going to read these three passages. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 when he had called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then we can read in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 38, or starting in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who desires to find his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And lastly, in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So now I think we're on to number three here, right? Let's take a look. I'm going to be primarily using Mark chapter 8 as my, as my uh, basis, base text there. So if you just keep your Bibles at Mark 8. I want us to look at that, those phrases, this simple phrase that Jesus gives us. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I really want us to understand what it is for a Christian to take up our cross. What does that mean? When I look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 34, that, just that first phrase, whoever would or whoever desires to follow after me. When I look at that phrase, I see at least three important truths. First, we see that word, whoever. Whoever desires to come after me. Remember that Paul, I mean, uh, Jesus says there he had called the people to himself with his disciples also. So at this moment... Jesus is not just talking to his disciples. He's, t- he's talking to a multitude of people. And so as he makes this statement, it's certainly not just to his disciples, and it's certainly not just to an unsaved crowd. It's to both. And so when I, when I see that word, whoever, as he, as he begins that statement, I, I see, first of all, it's an invitation. Whoever desires to follow, whoever would come after me, it's an invitation I believe that's spoken to every person. God or Jesus is giving an, every, an invitation to everyone to follow after him. And I believe this could be, it's a universal truth. I believe that Christ's invitation is for all men. But not only is it an invitation, remember he's not only speaking to the multitude, he's speaking to his disciples. And I think it's not only an invitation, it's an exhortation. And it's an exhortation to his disciples, and it's an exhortation to those of us who think or we claim to be already on the way. Jesus is not only speaking to the unsaved masses, he is speaking to you and me. If we are going to be a Christian, it's a qualifier. If we're going to be a Christian, there's a way in which we follow after Christ. Let's go on to the next slide there. 
That brings me to the, the second part of that, that phrase, whoever would follow after me. I just want to look at those, those words, after me. And again, to me, those words are very encouraging. Wherever we are going, where we are going, Jesus has already gone ahead of us. He's gone ahead, he's made a way, he's reached the other side. Nowhere we're told to forge our own way, to make our own road, to cut our own path. As Christians, we're told to follow on the path that Jesus has cut for us already. I love that thought. It kind of settles me no matter where I am in my Christian life. As long as I know that I'm following Jesus, wherever he is asking me to go, whatever trauma or trial he is asking me to pass through, I know, I can know, that Christ has already gone ahead of me. He's not pushing me ahead of himself. He's gone ahead. You know, I was thinking on this, and I was thinking on the idea of being lost. And I, I, there's nothing more disheartening than to realize that you are totally lost. I don't know if you've ever been lost, really lost, don't know where you're going, don't know how to get out from where you are. I've been really lost at several points in my life. My wife will tell you that I've been lost many times. Every time I pull out of the driveway, she immediately has her instructions of where I'm supposed to go. So, But I have been lost several times. I remember as a young child, I don't know if I've shared this story before, but I remember we used to travel over huge portions of the Aturi Forest, a huge jungle in Africa, in a little tiny Cessna airplane. And back then, there were no GPSs. It was just the, the maps that the, the pilot had with him. And we did that trip, it was a four-hour trip, and there was just nothing but jungle. And I always used to look out that little window and just think, man, if we went down, no one would ever find us, ever. And there were several times when the pilot got lost in a, in a rainstorm or a, a thunderstorm, and we had to veer around, and, and I remember my stomach just sinking, oh no, we're lost. And he would, you know, they would do their circling, and I'm here, so obviously we always made it out. <laughs> but there were several times when we thought we were going to ha- have to land on a road or a, uh, an open space, but God was gracious to us. But I, I remember that feeling, that deep pit in my stomach, we're lost, we're not going to get out of this. I remember being lost on Lake Victoria, which was where we were ministering in Uganda. And Lake Victoria is a huge lake. It's the second hard, largest lake in the world, 160 miles across. And one time we were out doing a medical ministry mission on these very sketchy boats. And we got caught in a rainstorm that just, instead of driving us towards the land, it drove us out into the lake. And uh, we were lost. And the captain, who was a Ugandan guy, didn't even want to listen to us. He knew best. But his knowing best was, I knew it was just taking us completely in the wrong direction. But in any case, that turned into a harrowing ordeal where we, the boat nearly broke apart and thankfully we were saved. But I remember that feeling of, of just being lost, of just not knowing 
what the end of this is going to be. On the other hand, there's nothing more encouraging than in that type of situation to be following someone who knows the way. And that's what we have in Jesus. You know, the, the Christian walk, certainly at times, we come into times in our life where we do feel lost. We don't know which way. We don't know how this is going to end up. But the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, we're reminded over and over again that Jesus has been where he's calling us to go. Hebrews 4.14, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. And to me, when I'm in those moments of life, not necessarily physically lost, but emotionally, I don't know if spiritually lost is the right word, but those times in life where the only thing I have to guide me is Christ himself, is his word, there is great encouragement in that. We want to have the security of knowing what our next steps are going to be. But there are many times when Jesus doesn't afford us those next steps. And the only thing we have is the vision of Christ himself. But that's the wonderful encouragement that we have as Christians, is that no matter where we're going or where, where we're, calling, we, we're being called to, Christ has gone before us. Amen? And that, that needs to bring comfort to our soul. And this brings me to the third truth that I see in, those, in that first phrase. Whoever desires to come after me. Or another translation, whoever would follow. And I just want to look at those words, would follow. Or whoever desires. When I look at those words, I see that there is a decision that is implied there. There's a decision that we make. Jesus isn't forcing us. We're, in a sense, looking at the claims of Christ, the veracity of Christ, the truth of Christ, the promises of Christ, and we're deciding, am I going to follow? And he's saying, whoever would follow, whoever desires, and we see that it's a decision on our part. And I, I would say that we must know and we must understand and accept that in following Jesus, there is a path that he has forged that we're going to be following with him on. And so we need to ask ourselves, what path did Jesus walk? What kind of path? Was it smooth or rough? Was it steep or flat? Was it muddy or dry? Was it mountains and valleys? Was it plains or desert? Where did Jesus' steps take him? I think we're at slide six there. I want you to, in your mind's eye, maybe take yourself back to a hiking trip that maybe you've been on. I've, I, in my past, I've done a lot of hiking, and I can kind of visualize climbing a mountain. But in my mind's eye, I'm walking, and I come across a path, and I see footprints. And as, you, as your eye follows the footprints on this path, you, you gaze down this track, and you see that the path and the footprints are leading to 
to a, a mountain peak, some, far, some way off in the dis- distance. And as you're looking at that, at that path and the footsteps going down that path, you kind of think, oh, that would be a wonderful place to be. The view must be amazing. The, the air must be so fresh. And so you decide, I'm going to follow those footprints. I'm going to climb that mountain. And so off you go, eager, expectant. But as you begin to follow, the path turns. The mountain peaks are no longer in view. It becomes rough. It becomes steep. Maybe it's wet. And you begin to have doubts. Am I truly on the right path? Is there a better way to get to this destination? And your path and the footprints cut cut across other paths that might seem a better way to go. They might be smoother, more direct. And you're wondering, are these footprints leading me on the right track? Bring it back to our Christian walk. As Christians, we're following in the footsteps of Christ. Where did Christ's steps take him? I want us to go to Philippians chapter 2 and let's observe the footsteps of Jesus. Again, reading the verse that I read to you before. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore Therefore God has also highly exalted him. We see in that passage, we see the steps of Christ. Where did Christ's steps take him? Well, we see that they took him from heaven to earth. They took him from glory to a manger. They took him from being a creator to being part of creation. They took him from being God to being a man. They took him from being worshipped to being shamed and even scorned. They took him from perfect fellowship with the Father to becoming sin for us, to becoming forsaken of the Father, to becoming even the object of the Father's wrath. They took him to death, even the shameful death on the cross. But that's not where Jesus' steps ended. Ultimately, the path that Jesus took took him to victory. Victory over death and winning victory over death for those who follow him. Those are the footsteps that Jesus made. And that's the way that Jesus has forged ahead of us. Whoever would follow after me question for us is how have we known and understood and accepted the path that Jesus forged or are we looking for other paths that we think will get us there easier let's turn back to the passage again mark 8:34 if we accept that those are the footsteps and that's the path that Jesus took, what must we do? 
Mark 8, 34. Whoever desires to come after me, we've done that, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The first thing that we see there is the phrase, let he must deny himself. You know, we know, we know this stuff. This isn't rocket science. We're, we're born with a sin nature, and that sin nature is our, is our sinful self. But God has given us the ability to know right from wrong, our conscience, the Holy Spirit. And at the moment of our salvation, we are reborn. We're given a new nature. And now we have a daily choice to make as we live our life. Who or what are we going to live for? And the question is, are we going to live, go through life living for ourself? Let's consider self. What does self want? I think we're all, we could all pretty much give a good definition or give a good uh, description of what self wants. But self wants pleasure. Self wants ease. Self wants security. Self wants to be served. It wants to be gratified. It wants to be taken care of. Self wants everything now. Self is easily offended. Self gets angry when things don't go its way or if it's made to be uncomfortable. We could go on and on describing self, but ultimately, self thinks only of ourself. Self has its own path it wants to take you on. And it says to you, you can still reach your destination. You can still climb that high mountain. Only my way will be a lot easier and a lot more fun. That's kind of what self is telling us. But we also have the new nature. That new, that new nature that is given to us the moment that we have been born again. Are we going to live according to that new nature? That is the Spirit of God that is urging us to live for God. You know, we must, we must choose. It's as if there's a fork in the road and we see a sign that says something like self-highway and the wide, smooth asphalt road going in that direction. And then there's a smaller sign over a smaller, sketchier, narrower, less traveled trail that, that says narrow way. What road are we going to travel on? But that verse describes not only the need to deny ourself, it also says there's something else we must do. It says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And this is where we're coming to kind of the point of, our, of my message this evening, the whole issue of the cross. What is the cross? But two things we see there. We need to deny self and take up our cross. And pick up this heavy, rough, awkward, hewn pole we call the cross that Jesus says belongs to me. What does it mean to take up our cross? Is it saying, okay, Lord, in the same way that you died, I want to die for my faith. I'm going to be a martyr. Is it saying, okay, Lord, in the same way you suffered, I'm going to torture myself. 
I'm going to go be a missionary in some God-forsaken place of the world. Is it saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to be poor and live a miserable, depressing life. That's my cross, and I'm going to do that cheerfully. Is that our cross? I know that uh, you guys probably read the news, but every, time, every Easter I'm intrigued by this ritual that goes on in the Philippines, and I'm sure other places, where people literally submit themselves to be nailed to a cross as they desire somehow to identify with the death of Christ, as if that is the cross that they are called to bear. But what is our cross? Is it being a martyr? Is it being tortured? Is it being poor? Is it, is it giving up the good life? You know, our cross may involve those things. Our cross may require those actions at, or attitudes at some point. But no, none of these things are really the cross that Christ calls us to lift up. So what really is our cross? I think Jesus gives us a clue here to the answer as we read the statement at once. He must deny himself and take up his cross. Deny himself and take up his cross. Whatever the cross is, it's contrary to, it's opposed, it's opposite of saying yes to self. Whatever the cross is, I can't carry it when self is in my hands. I can't pick it up until I let go of self. So I want us to think about this. What's the opposite of self? What's the opposite of self? Others. And what's the opposite of living for ourself? Living for others. And how would you describe a person whose whole life is spent living for others? I would simply describe it as it's a life of love. And so here I come to my simple conclusion about what the cross is. What is our cross? Could our cross be simply to love? To live a life of love? Is our cross simply to allow the life of Jesus, who is love, to manifest himself in us and through us fully and to a greater and greater degree as we live our lives? And the degree to which we deny self, the love of Christ shines through. But the degree that self is not denied, the love of Christ is inhibited. You know, the Bible says that God is love, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And this true love is shown in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when you look at the fruits of the Holy Spirit, you'll notice one thing. They are not fruit that gratify self. They, they, are, they are things that encourage and help and grow and gratify others. They are fruits that involve giving. A life of love will automatically be a life of giving to others. The Bible says God loved us, and he loved us so much that he gave us his best, his son Jesus Christ. Jesus loved us so much that he said yes to his father's command to go and to lay down his life 
on the cross for us. Jesus gave his most. He gave his life. And you can't give any more than that. And so here we come to the result. A life of love will always mean giving. And it will result in three things. And first, these are my last three points. I want us to look at what the result of a life of love will look like. And yes, it will result in suffering. Loving Jesus or loving Christ, as we are told to love, will require that we deny self, and in denying self, we will suffer. Ourselves will suffer. Allow yourself to think on the realm of self and admit there will be an element, maybe a lot of suffering when we start to say no to lustful thoughts and desires, when we start to say no to the desires of our flesh, when we begin to question how we spend our money, when we begin to curb our appetites for the things of the world and begin to channel all that we are into kingdom purposes. Saying no to ourself will require suffering. It will cause suffering. But ourselves will not only suffer in the negative sense, but also in the positive sense as we love, as we give, as we extend ourselves to others, as Christ did for us. When we are patient, we might suffer. When we are kind, when we are giving, we can suffer. When we overlook a wrong, we can suffer. A person who loves will be taken advantage of, stepped on, abused, But as they are stepped on, they are in fact acting as a stepping stone. Others will walk over to reach Jesus. So, a life of love, a life of denying self, will bring necessarily an element of suffering. But I would say we're entirely missing the point if we think, if all we think about is suffering that being a Christian involves because there's a reason for this suffering. And to an even greater degree, taking up our cross and living a life of love is for a purpose. Yes, loving Christ calls us to love and will result in suffering, but in extending ourselves in love, and this is what's exciting to me, when we extend ourselves in love, we're fulfilling the great unfinished task that Jesus left us to complete. Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body. And 2 Corinthians 1, 5 says, For as the suffering of Christ abounds in us, so our consolations also abound through Christ. When I look at those verses, I remember as a younger Christian, I remember asking myself, what could possibly be lacking in in Christ's death? Paul says, I fill up in myself that which is lacking in the affliction of Christ. What could be lacking in Christ's death? What more needs to be done? And here's the truth that all of us as Christians need to embrace. And I want you to think about this. Christ's death, Christ's suffering, resulted in salvation for mankind. There was no other way. 
There was no other way to achieve salvation for humankind apart from the willing submission of Jesus to go to the cross and to die in our place. And he left the job, in a sense, incomplete, with a job for us to do. To take that message to the ends of the world, to every generation, to every tribe, to every tongue, to every people. And in the same way that Christ's willingness to suffer brought the opportunity for salvation to mankind, and here's where it gets practical for us, our willingness to participate in Christ's suffering, to say no to self, to extend ourselves in love, is the only way salvation will be brought to the world. If Paul had not embraced his suffering, think of what would not have happened. So what is lacking? Men and women who are willing to deny self and pick up their cross of love. Lastly, the life of love will result in joy. Deep, satisfying joy. Present and eternal joy. This is what Jesus said. Jesus didn't call us to a life of depression, misery, and hopelessness. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life, and that life more abundantly. John 16.33, in this world you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. James 1.2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James 1.2. The life of following Jesus is a joyful life, a purposeful life, a satisfying life, an exciting life. Jesus picked up his cross. His cross was the fact that he loved. He loved us. He loved you so much that he was unwilling that we should perish. And so he said yes when his father said go. And he left the glory of heaven, came to the earth, and in humility endured suffering and died the scornful, ignominious death on the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 gives us a picture looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. The joy of Jesus was you and me. His love, his love for us was the motivation to endure the hard thing. And the hard thing was the cross. And the cross that Jesus tells us to take up is the same cross that Jesus himself picked up. It is to love. And in loving, we do suffer. But in loving, we have our greatest joy. You see, picking up our cross, which Jesus says for us to do daily, is not a complicated thing. It's actually very, a very simple thing. And it requires that we acknowledge 
self. That many times our hands are so full of self that we literally can't pick up our cross. We don't have the ability to love another person. And that's why Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny self and pick up the cross. You know, there's such a mission field right outside of our doors. I'm part of a, we started the men's group here and I was sharing last night as we were sharing our prayer requests you know, just my own request. And I was just sharing how one of the biggest challenges that my wife and I face is, is in a sense, just coming into a brand new culture again. Even though I'm, you know, I'm an American, I'm, I, but I've lived more of my life in Africa than I have lived here in the United States. And I've gotten so used to living in Africa where, interestingly, you know, People in Africa are very spiritual, and to talk about spiritual things is very easy. It's a very simple thing to start a conversation about God. And coming back here, and you just find that so many people's hearts are, are so hardened. That's such a foreign concept. And just realizing the need that is in our own country, and you know that. Pastor Rob preaches it every single Sunday. And what keeps being impressed upon my heart is really the very vision of Pastor Rob and the vision of this church. That church is not this building. It's really you and I going out into the community and taking this very concept, that desire to, to love to extend ourselves. Paul said, I rejoice in filling up that which is lacking in the affliction of Christ. And because Paul was willing to suffer, and suffering for him means different than what suffering necessarily means for you and me. But because he was willing, the gospel went out. And I'm challenged by that very thought. Am I willing? Am I willing to be considered silly or narrow-minded Am I willing to be made fun of? I think of the way Jesus died, and I, I remember learning that in that day and age, there was an honorable way to die, and there was a dishonorable way to die. And Jesus didn't die the honorable death. He died the most dishonorable death. Are we willing to be dishonored? so that that message can go out. And I'm preaching to myself. This is all stuff I'm, I'm struggling with here too because ministry here looks so much different than it does where I've been for the last 14 years. 
But to me, that's the cross. Simply a willingness to love. And all the ramifications that love brings.